Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. As if pandemics, threats of nuclear war, and a lack of Tesla charging stations aren't enough to worry about, there's always the possibility that an asteroid could hit the Earth and wipe all of us out. A team at NASA discovered a way to alter the path of an asteroid should one come too close, though, and they're also finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Joining Federal Drive host Tom Temin with the details from NASA's Planetary Missions Program Office, Program Manager Brian Key and Mission Manager Scott Bellamy. All right, you launched a rocket that crashed into an asteroid, and I guess my first question is, this rocket was able to change somewhat the trajectory of that asteroid. I want to understand what the math calculus was. I mean, generally, how did you figure this out? Because an asteroid is very big, a rocket is very small. You couldn't launch something as big as the asteroid. That's not possible. But if you shot a marble at it, it wouldn't make any difference. What was the process to figure out how you could do this? Scott? I think the easiest way to you know, start that answer that question is realize that it's not just Brian and I. There's an entire team behind us. You know, we sit in a management position, but you know, supporting this entire effort is a large group of scientists and engineers uh, working at the Applied Physics Laboratory to uh, help answer that. But tell us what the team did. So if you look at it like you're playing billiards in space, uh, you're playing pool, galactic pool. So this is not dissimilar from how you described the scenario with the smaller spacecraft hitting the larger asteroid. But when you take the smaller spacecraft and you, you know, look at how fast is it flying, what is its mass relative to the object that it's impacting, you determine how much kinetic energy has to be imparted from one body to the other to affect a change in its orbit. And so the scientists that you know, have been working on the design of the mission came up with the parameters that needed to be adjusted in order to achieve the result of altering the orbit of Dimorphos. All right. And what happened when you launched it? It hit the asteroid. <laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> That is actually the point of highest tension in this entire event, is what happened when it hit the asteroid. It hit the asteroid, it's, you know, very high velocity, and uh, the smaller asteroid dimorphous is that we ended up with a lot of spacecraft confetti. We had a spacecraft that's just a little over 1,200 pounds in mass, you know, slightly larger than, you know, your typical refrigerator, and it hit at you know, over 13,000, almost 13,500 miles per hour. So it was not just a glancing blow. It was a very precisely targeted impact with a certain spot on the surface of Dimorphos to achieve that perfect little amount of English on the spacecraft's trajectory inbound to get that ball to sink right into the corner pocket the way they planned it. The speed is a big factor in this, almost like a hypersonic missile. It's the impact of the weight times the speed that is the power. It doesn't even have to have an that's, explosive. Yeah. yeah, that's the energy. Mass times velocity. You're calculating the kinetic energy of the impact. And so with with a known kinetic energy impacting an object that is traveling in its orbit at its certain velocity, you know, you take the velocity and you break it down into what you're facing head on and then you know what the mass is roughly that's coming at you and you size the spacecraft large enough to hopefully surpass what's needed to change it 
because you can get hit by a Volkswagen out on the interstate. And if you're driving a huge SUV, it's still going to you know, affect your trajectory down the road. Yeah, it can flip you over if the angle is right, I guess. Yeah, uh, true. And Brian, you're the program manager. Uh, how did you convince NASA and I guess ultimately Congress I mean, it sounds like a little bit science fiction. You know, you've seen cartoons of rockets landing in the moon's eyeball, this kind of thing. How did you convince them that this was a worthwhile experiment? It didn't take much convincing. These ideas have been out there for quite a while. And the science mission directorate at headquarters stood up a planetary defense office within the planetary science office. And it was the planetary defense office that basically brought forward the idea. Once they selected the mission, we took over management of it. So it was planetary defense office that actually uh, brought it forward and said, yeah, this is a good thing for us to try and do. And they went to APL and got a proposal of what it would take. Then they turned it over to us to implement it. The rocket itself, was it just a rocket and the weight of itself was there? Was there lead weights in the front or anything to get it to that proper mass that you calculated it required? Well, first, let's think about it like this. It's not the entire rocket. It's just the spacecraft that the rocket is launching. So, no, everything on the spacecraft, the essential things to be able to fly it, you have to be able to have the items that control the trajectory of the spacecraft, uh, point the solar arrays, the solar arrays themselves, the optical instrument that has to be there to do the targeting. So the spacecraft in and of itself was literally what it needed to fit inside of the launch vehicle, you know, the fairing at the top, the enclosure, and have enough mass to affect a change. Now, its weights are sometimes added to any spacecraft, to get the balance where you want it to. But no, it wasn't like a uh, race car that's carrying an extra 1,500 pound of weight just to get to the mass where they want it. In this case, in most cases, it's like, you know, if you have space to, left to play with, you prefer to put something usable in there for mission accomplishment other than just dead weight. And it's been, <laughs> you know, a couple of eons, I guess, since an asteroid has hit the Earth. 60, 65 million years, maybe, a long time. Does NASA generally watch asteroids? And what is anyone's best guess of the chances of being hit anytime soon by another asteroid big enough to do damage to humanity? I guess we get hit by little meteorites all the time. The last asteroid to hit was not 65 million years ago. We've had fairly good-sized asteroids hit the Earth more recent than that, just not in the United States. The, I think the last one was over in Russia. We do have a sister mission that is in development right now that will put basically a, a camera up in orbit around the Earth that will basically monitor the sky and collect data to determine where these asteroids are, what their trajectories are, whether they're a danger to Earth or not. That particular mission, I think, scheduled to launch in 2027. It's called NEO Surveyor. Sure. And a couple of final questions. The asteroid that you did this proof of concept on that you could change, what was its mass? And so what is the greatest mass that you think that a launch could actually affect? So the Didymos system is the target here for this test. Didymos is a binary asteroid. It has the larger primary and the smaller secondary moonlet. 
that was targeted. This gave us an opportunity to actually be able to observe the change that we were hoping for. So the smaller asteroid is named Dimorphos. It has a mean diameter of 160 meters, and we don't necessarily have a good mass estimate for either the primary or the secondary. I can pull something up to share with you, but it's still just an estimate. The largest factor here was is that it's in a stable orbit around its parent. It's typically is measured at a average with plus or minus some seconds of 11.9 hours, and we know how big it is. So we can estimate the mass of it and use that information compared to you know, the orbital dy- dynamics between the two to understand how large change might be. Now, usually, I mean, you were asking about how heavy one of these is. We usually talk about them in terms of how big they are in mean diameter. You know, there's some interesting data out there, you know, of asteroids that are roughly four meters. You know, there could be 500 million of them out there that, you know, tease Earth in their orbits. Uh, those that are uh, around 25 meters, you know, 5 million. But then you get up to the dinosaur killers, which are 10,000 meters roughly, and they think that there are roughly only four of those hanging around out there in space. These are the ones that we have to worry about. They have orbits that cross Earth's orbit periodically, or they can pose a potential Earth-crossing hazard. Now, there are a large number of asteroids out in the two belts, the one between Earth and Mars and the one further out past Pluto. There's just, you know, LA-405 at 5 o'clock rush hour. It kind of looks like that. But you were able to change the trajectory of something that was 160 meters across. Could you change the trajectory of something that's 10,000 meters across? My answer is yes. The The answer depends on... What's more important in this scenario is when you find it and how big it is and how soon it's going to get here. So if you detect it early enough, you have time to put together the mission, get it built, get it launched to travel there. If you find it too late, you're already behind playing catch up. To generate the largest benefit from a mission like DART, you want to find the asteroid when it's as far away as possible sure. and be able to get to it as soon as possible. The further away the asteroid is, the smaller the change in its trajectory you have to make because a half-degree change in its trajectory when it's five years out will result in a really large miss distance once it finally gets to Earth. Is there the danger that it could accidentally be knocked into a better chance of hitting the Earth? That's a difficult question to answer. I don't even know if I want to try. (laughs) Well, let's hope not. Brian Key is a program manager, and Scott Bellamy is a mission manager in the Planetary Missions Program Office at NASA. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing 
what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time. So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. 
your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. 
And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.